I'll be continuing in John chapter 13, and I'll be reading from verse 18 through to verse 38. So if you're able, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord. John 13, verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Simon entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why I had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. May the Lord enable us to understand and to apply this passage of Scripture this morning. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that reveals so much of who you are and in the light of your Holy Spirit reveals also who we are. Lord, I pray that you will enable us to search our hearts and to see where this passage applies to us. Lord, that we might, be, we might break free from sin and selfishness and from self-reliance and cast ourselves afresh on you. And Lord, give us eyes to see you as you really are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to consider two of the most abhorrent atrocities that a human being can commit. 
these two atrocities are so despicable that even the world detests them. Even the world that, with its love of sin, recognizes the vileness of these actions. I'm speaking here of betrayal and denial. And we're going to see two incidents, incidences in which this takes place. But these two incidents of denial and betrayal immeasurably surpass all other denials and betrayals that have ever taken place and that will ever take place. They're infinitely worse than Benedict Arnold's betrayal of America to the British during the War of Independence. Infinitely worse than Guy Fawkes' attempt to blow up the British Parliament in King James I. Infinitely worse than Brutus's assassination of his uncle Julius Caesar. Infinitely worse than Vidkun Quisling's collaboration with the Nazis against his native Norway. Or Wang Jingwei's collaboration with the Japanese against his native China before World War II. These examples of betrayal and denial are made worse not just because they were made in some cases against a close friend or even a relative, but because they were made against Jesus Christ, God the Son, whose allegiance is demanded immeasurably above any nation or familial or friend relationship. So this morning we're going to be looking at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and the denial of Jesus by Peter. But against this backdrop of hatred and faithlessness, we see the love and faithfulness of Christ. Against the darkness of those actions, the love of Christ shines eminently brighter. So this morning we're going to look first at the betrayal of Judas in verses 18 to 30, and this is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time. It's immediately after Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples, where God himself stripped off his outer garments, wrapped a towel around his waist, and bowed before the feet of these 12 men, performing a service that was reserved for the lowliest of slaves. But the foot washing pointed to the way that Jesus was about to humble himself even further, all the way to death on a Roman cross. And in doing this, it pointed to the ultimate cleansing that Jesus would perform for his people just a few hours later. Jesus had said to Peter in verses 10 and 11, The one who is bathed need not to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus had even washed the feet of Judas, the one who was about to betray him. What do you think would have been going on in Judas's mind as Jesus bowed there before his feet? He would have loathed every minute of it because he loathed the Lord. But after telling the disciples that by washing their feet, he was setting an example for them and telling them that they would be blessed by serving in the same way, in verse 18, he said again that he wasn't speaking of all of them. Not all of them were clean. He says, I know, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Not all of them would be blessed for obedience. 
One from among them was a devil. But Jesus had chosen him anyway. Of course, Jesus didn't choose Judas for salvation, but in order to accomplish the purpose, the purpose that had been prophesied for him. We saw this last week from John 6, 70 and 71, where Jesus said, Did, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas did this to fulfill Scripture, and specifically Psalm 41, verse 8. David penned these words, speaking of of the the treachery that he suffered as his trusted counselor, Ahithophel, betrayed him to Absalom in Absalom's rebellion against the king. Now, David was speaking of his own experience, but at the same time, as a type of Christ, many of the events of David's life pointed to the sufferings of Christ, the king of kings. And notably here, he is prophesying the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And all four of the Gospels repeat that quote. They just sat down at the table together. This is the Last Supper. Now, they had shared many meals together, countless meals together prior to this time. But this meal was special. Judas had sat down with Jesus and shared many meals. He'd even eaten twice of the miraculous loaves and fishes. He'd seen the miracles. He had heard the teaching of Jesus. Yet he had set his heart to betray him. He was about to betray Jesus to the chief priests. And Judas did this to fulfill prophecy. But even though he was fulfilling prophecy, does that mean that he is not guilty? We read that he was actually possessed by Satan. Now, I just want to clarify something. This is at, it is at this point, after he receives the sop, the, the morsel dipped in, the, in, in the, the, the oil, that he is that he is possessed. He is not possessed until this point. But he is complicit in the betrayal. He is complicit. The betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus was satanic, but Judas was still responsible for his actions. He was acting according to the hatred that was already in his black heart. But Jesus didn't want his disciples to, to, to think that he'd made a mistake in choosing Jesus. Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart from the beginning, but he still chose him, knowing exactly what he would do. So he told them in verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it t- does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus will make a, a similar statement in 1429. By declaring this prophecy, Jesus is demonstrating that he is omniscient. And by using again, which I hope is familiar to you, this this formulation, I am, he is revealing that he is Yahweh. Jesus is reinforcing their faith, preparing them for the shock of what is about to take place by telling them that he is God. Now, of course, they're not going to fully understand until after the resurrection, until after they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. But this was an important step of preparation for his beloved disciples before the horror of what was about to take place. In verse 20, 
Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Matthew 10.40 is almost identical. In the context of Jesus' previous statement, we are seeing the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, and the parallel relationship between Christ and his disciples. It also points ahead to the Great Commission, as found in John 20.21. Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The disciples will go forward as ambassadors for Christ, entrusted with a message of reconciliation, imploring people to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. Fellow Christians, we have been given the same commission. We too are ambassadors for Christ. The relationship between the Father and the Son is mirrored in the relationship between the Son and us if we are truly his disciples. But John 13.20 also calls to mind the converse. Luke said in, in Luke 10.16, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The only way to the Father is through the Son. The only way to receive the Father is by receiving the Son. And here, Judas is rejecting Jesus. And he's rejecting the Father as well. But after saying this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Just as he had powerfully revealed his deity only moments before, now he is revealing his humanity. He had displayed the same emotion in John eleven thirty three at the response of Mary and the other mourners to the death of Lazarus. Whereas John Hutchison poetically wrote, Jesus, Jesus was gazing into the skeleton face of the world and tracing everywhere the reign of death. The whole earth was to him but the valley of the shadow of death. And in these tears which were shed in his presence, he saw that ocean of time rose waters of deep woe, are brackish with the salt of human tears. But here that profound grief had another object, the treachery of a friend. Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart from the beginning, but it still hurt deeply, terribly. And he didn't respond, oh, well, I knew this was going to happen. It hurt him. Betrayal hurts, and Jesus was not exempt from the pain of this. Calvin says that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us Christ's body, but John shows us Christ's soul. John gives us deep insight into the heart of our Lord. Although he was God incarnate, Jesus is not just a God far off. He is a God who has come near, who took on human flesh and suffered every temptation that we suffer, beloved. Have you ever experienced betrayal? Betrayal of a, of a close friend. I know when I was in high school, a, a bunch of, of my guys who I thought were my good friends betrayed me and mocked me, and it became kind of a, for, for a period, kind of a laughing stock in our class. And that, that hurt for a long time. 
Maybe you've experienced the the betrayal of, of a husband or of a wife. Maybe you're going through that at this very moment. But fellow Christian, if you've ever experienced the pain of betrayal, take heart, for our Lord has experienced it too. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 We look to, to a God who has suffered, who has suffered deeply, and who has suffered for us a pain immeasurably deeper than we will ever experience as even his heavenly father turned his back on him on the cross. But the disciples were dumbfounded. They just sat staring blankly at one another, wondering of whom Jesus was speaking. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Think about what Jesus was saying and how it would have hit them. One of the men that, you have ser- that they had served beside for, for almost three years was going to betray the Lord. You know that everything that Jesus says is 100% accurate, and you know that this is going to happen. That's not all. What if it's you that Jesus is speaking of? Matthew tells us that they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Matthew 26, 22. They were all wondering if it might have been them was going to be the one who would betray Jesus. And one of his disciples, the disciple that Jesus loved, which is John's humble way of referring to himself without mentioning his own name, was leaning against Jesus as they reclined at the table. Now, interestingly, as a side note, sitting on cushions in the floor was something that was only done at special meals. At most events, they would actually sit at a table, similar to a way that, that we do now. And the, the, this, uh, this custom of, of sitting reclining at a table on cushions was something that had been introduced to Jewish culture by the Romans, and, the, the, uh, and the, the Jews hated it. They saw it as being hedonistic. But by the time that the Jesus, uh, by the time of Jesus, they had accepted the, the practice and would only do this at special meals. This is, this is the Last Supper. Something very special is going on here. And Peter wanted to know who it was that would betray Jesus. But instead of asking himself, he got John to do it. So John asked the Lord, who said, It is he to whom I will dip this morsel of bread. I will give this morsel to bread when I have dipped it. Now, dipping bread in a common bowl was, was a token of intimacy in that culture. This was, was a final act of love from Jesus towards Judas. Leslie Newbegin explains, and that final act of love becomes, with terrible immediacy, the decisive moment of judgment. Now we see just how literally Judas fulfills Psalm 41.8. Judas was literally biting the hand that fed him. Then Matthew includes a powerful condemnation by Jesus. He says, The Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Again, we see that, that although the betrayal of Jesus by Judas had been foretold in Scripture, Judas is still responsible. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And then Matthew tells us that Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Then in verse 27, After Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Again, it's at this point that Judas is possessed. As Hendrickson puts it, in verse 2, we see that the devil had put the idea into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But now in verse 27, he puts himself into Judas's heart. There was someone else in that room besides Jesus and the disciples. Satan was prowling around up there. And so Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Get it over with. But in verse 28, we see that the disciples still didn't know what had happened. John knew, and maybe Peter, but none of them knew why Jesus had said this. Some thought that, that maybe Jesus was sending him out in order to buy something for the feast, or that, that he was sending him out to, to give something to, to the poor because Judas had held the money bag. But after receiving the morsel, Judas went out and it was night. And the darkness that's on the outside reflects the darkness that is in Judas's heart. He had no love for Jesus. But Judas wasn't loveless. He had a very strong love, but he didn't love the right things. Remember the turning point for Judas in John chapter 12 when he got angry over Mary wasting, quote-unquote, the expensive ointment and pouring it out on Jesus' feet. Judas loved money and I'm sure a host of other things, and his love for things consumed him and destroyed him to the point where, just a few chapters later, in John 18, Judas will, will come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and betray the Lord with a kiss. But right there, even after the darkness of the night and the darkness of Judas's heart, a light shines. A light shines in verses 31 to 35. Here's where we see the love of Christ. After Judas left and took his darkness with him, Jesus declared, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The time has come. In these events and the events that to follow, the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified in the Father, and the Father is glorified in the Son. Derek Thomas says, something of the very essence of God is being displayed here. Love is being displayed here. Eternal, ineffable love is being displayed. Love is at work in this place, here in the upper room, with betrayal and denial before him. The love of God, the love of Jesus, the love of Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father, and the love of God for sinners is being displayed against the hatred and faith, faithlessness we see the love and faithfulness of Christ 
against the black backdrop of those vile actions, the love of Christ shines eminently brighter. And then in verse 33, Jesus displays fatherly care for his disciples, saying, little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so also now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He'd already told the Jews this twice. He told his enemies, and now he's telling his beloved friends. He knows that he doesn't have much time left with them, and although he is departing to be with his father, he knows that they can't follow yet. And then in one of the most beautiful and challenging passages in the Bible, Jesus tells them how they are to live after his departure. He says in verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But again, this commandment is not new. It goes back to Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But it goes back even further to the, to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Where if you remember that the second half of the Ten Commandments all are practical ways that we are to live out the one another love that God calls us to. The newness is in the revelation of the magnitude of the love that we are called to. Beloved, our standard of love is the love of Christ. This is the love of one who did not just humble himself to wash the feet of his disciples, but one who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for his bride. And it's there in the crucifixion that we get our clearest view of the, of the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, even as the Father pours out his wrath on the Son and turns his back on the Son. But beloved, he does this for us. For us, it is also the clearest example of love that has ever taken place or that ever will take place that a holy, sinless God would joyfully, gladly shed his lifeblood and be punished and separated by his heavenly Father and of love for us, his people. Beloved, Christ's love is our standard. It's the standard of love of love for husbands towards their wives, where husbands selflessly pour themselves into the wives and wash them by the word, loving them as their own bodies, as we're told in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. But Christ's love is not just the standard of love for husbands, it's the standard of love for all of us in the church. One another includes everybody in the church. In Ephesians 5, 2, Paul writes, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Beloved, we have been given a local body where we can love one another as Christ loved us. As we pour out our lives in humble service for one another. 
Last week, I, listed a, 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 I made a list of, of practical ways that we can do this. We need to ask the Lord to provide opportunities to do that and to give us a heart to act on it. But our love doesn't just stop there. We're to love our brothers and sisters who, who disagree with us. It's so easy to... It's so easy to love people who think exactly like you. But I've noticed that, that quite often you could sit down with a Christian, you will agree on 95% of theology. But your, your conversation will focus on the 5% over which you don't agree. And that should extend not just to those in, in our church body, but in the, the wider church in the city, and around the world. And it's not just people who disagree with us. It's people who shamefully treat us and misuse us. Jesus set the example for this, not, not by dying for Judas, but by washing Judas's feet and by giving him that morsel. He was loving even Judas, who would betray him. But our love doesn't just stop there either. We are to love our brothers and sisters around the world. Christ's bride. Around the world and throughout the ages. Especially those who are suffering persecution. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Hebrews 13.3 When one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. That's why Jesus said to Paul when, when Paul was, was persecuting the church, why are you persecuting me? When one part of the church hurts, the whole church hurts. And the church's head hurts. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When we love in this way, it's evangelistic. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we love one another in this way, we are reflecting the love of Christ for us. We're loving in a way that we could never do on our own. We can't do this. We can't love in this way. We can't live up to Christ's standard. We can't do it. But praise God, fellow Christian, that Christ has fulfilled this law for you. His perfect love has been credited to your account. Think about that. The perfect love of Christ, even his selfless death on the cross, has been credited to your account. But then out of that love, out of that love that, that Christ has for, for you and for me, we are to, out of the overflow of that to love one another. By God's grace, we need to repent of the many times that we fall short and ask God to help us to keep our faith in Christ 
Again, we can't love in this way, but it's impossible even to go in this direction unless God is at work in our hearts to will and to work according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.12. But that's where Peter went wrong. So finally, let's look at the denial of Peter in verses 36 to 38. In verse 36, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? After what Jesus has just said, Peter is focusing on the fact that Jesus is leaving. On one level, it's a good thing that Peter doesn't want to see Jesus go. But he's not compelled by a desire for obedience. And he still doesn't seem to understand what Jesus means by his departure. Again and again, Jesus had explicitly told the disciples that he would be crucified and raised on the third day, but they didn't understand it until it actually happened. They didn't understand it until the Holy Spirit gave them insight. And so Jesus responds to Peter, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. But even here in this prophecy of Peter's faithlessness, there is a glimpse of hope. Remember that Jesus has just declared Peter clean. And Jesus says that Peter couldn't follow him now, but he would follow him later. In John 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus told Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you on where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Fox's Book of Martyrs reports that, that Peter was actually crucified in Rome about 30 years later. But he wasn't willing to be crucified in the same way as his Lord, so he requested that he would be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy. He knew that he wasn't worthy. But Peter, at this point, is not thinking about later. So he asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? But Peter is self-confident in his ability to stand firm, so he boldly declares, I will lay down my life for you. Each of the Gospels includes Peter's false declaration. Now, whether he did this in response to what had happened with Judas, I'm not sure, but he's saying, though others may leave you, I will never leave you. I will stand firm to the bitter end. But consider the irony here. Jesus will lay down his life for Peter, not the other way around. D.A. Carson says, Tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but a certain haughty independence that is the seed of the denial itself. So Jesus answers, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. In the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18, Peter would actually take up a sword as if to, to defend Jesus when the soldiers came to arrest him. 
And in his attempt, he even cuts off the ear of Malchus, a servant of the high priest. But then Judas rebukes him and healed the man's ear. So much for bold Peter. Only a few verses later, he will deny Christ as a mere servant girl asks him if he is one of Jesus' disciples. He'll do it again as another servant girl asks while he is warming himself by the fire. Then the third time comes when he's asked by a servant or a relative of Malchus, whose ear he had cut off, saying, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter took a step, took it even a step further. Matthew provides more detail in Matthew 26, verses 69 to 75. But this time he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. But the bystanders recognized his accent, and, and Peter invoked a curse on himself, swearing, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered what Jesus had said, and he wept bitterly. So the devil didn't leave with Judas. He was still there as a roaring lion. And Peter knew from personal experience as he wrote decades later, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 1.8 But what's the difference between Judas and Peter? What's the difference? Jesus. In Luke 22, 31, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The only reason that Peter wasn't destroyed by Jesus, by Judas, sorry, the only reason Peter wasn't destroyed like Judas was that Jesus was interceding for him. And we know from, from John 21 what happened, that for every one of the three times that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he was reinstated. He was again considered to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But Judas didn't repent. There's no John chapter 21 for Judas. Although the King James says he repented himself, it's actually a different Greek word. The, the Greek word there is metamelome, which is, which is mere grief. If you turn, please, for a moment to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Second Corinthians seven ten. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then Paul goes on to, to talk about the fruits of godly repentance. We've talked about this many times. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. It, it, it's easy to be sorrowful. It's easy to be sorrowful over sin, but repentance has to take place. The King James says that, that, that Judas repented himself. 
But true repentance, metanoio repentance, is described in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 as being a gift of God, that God grants repentance, leading to acknowledgement of the truth. There is no John 21 for Judas. In Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, we read that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And that's the word that's, 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 repent, that's uh, phrased there sometimes, repented. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He even acknowledged that he sinned. And they said to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. But then throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Beloved, this is not the fruit of repentance, of true heart repentance. This is the fruit of a heart who still hates God. Whereas Peter declared, I love you. I love you. I love you. Beloved, we are all, every one of us in this room, are either Judas or Peter. Every one of us. Just as Judas had been consumed and destroyed by the things that he loved, setting our hearts on the wrong things will consume and destroy us as well. What love consumes you? Do you love money, sports, illicit pleasure, entertainment? It might even be something good like family, friends, or hard work. But if your love is focused on anything other than Jesus, that love will consume you and destroy you. It was true for Judas and it is true for us. If your love for things is not grounded in love for Jesus, and it does not come from love for Jesus, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. It is hatred of God. And it will destroy you just like Judas. But maybe you think that you'd never do that. Maybe you think that you would never betray Jesus. But we've all betrayed Jesus, haven't we? We've all betrayed Jesus every time that we do something that displeases him. Every time that we we choose something else besides him, we are behaving just like Judas. And there would have been a time that Judas would have said the same thing. Judas didn't set out from the beginning to betray Jesus. That didn't happen until after the incident with Mary. Even though his motivations and desires for following Jesus would have been corrupt, he didn't set out to do it. Jesus Jesus chose him and Judas willingly followed, but Jesus didn't twist his arm. For those three years, he followed after Jesus, probably performing miracles even.
Beloved, your life is on a trajectory. You're either moving closer to God with your choices and your behavior, or you're moving further away from Him. And the choices that you make now will affect your eternity. But fellow Christians, what is the difference between us and Judas? Jesus. Jesus. In the same way that Jesus made the difference for Peter, Jesus also makes a difference for us. A number of years ago, I was involved in in what can loosely be called a home church, but I would probably more accurately refer to it as a home cult. And it had, it had all of the hallmarks of a cult, even though I didn't recognize it at the time. There was, was a single leader with no accountability. And he was, when we looked through the videos on, on the marks of a cult, he was doing all of those things. He was, was adding to the Word of God in, in the way that he reinterpreted Scripture. And so doing, he was also de- taking away from the deity of Christ. He was multiplying works by, by telling us that, that, that essentially we had to work for our salvation. And he was dividing us from our loved ones. And there was one incident that I can remember like it was yesterday. When the, the leader was away and his son was, was teaching in his absence. And this was a group that believed heavily on the, the, the so-called word of knowledge. And through the course of his message, he essentially called me Judas. It rocked me. It rocked me. For two days, it was basically all that I could think about. And I didn't understand, I didn't understand good doctrine. I, I, I didn't understand God's faithfulness. And I, I tried to, to examine my heart. I thought, I'm, I'm trying to serve Jesus. I fail, but, but I love Jesus. I'm thankful for what he's done for me, and my faith is in him. But I thought, maybe it's just all going to be for nothing. And at the end, I'll be like Judas, cast into eternal hellfire. It wasn't, wasn't all that long after that that I left that group and found a degree of freedom. But that that those words were a dart to my heart that troubled me for, for almost a whole year. Until in God's providence, the, the Lord led a man into my life who, who taught me about God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness, and he showed me from Scripture the, the preservation of the saints. Sometimes we refer to this as the perseverance of the saints, but that's really a misnomer. It's the preservation of the saints as God preserves his elect. And it was out of that that I, I, I began to, to experience real freedom. And I, I trusted that God was a righteous judge. And that he could be trusted. So maybe some of you here are wondering, am I Judas? Am I Judas? 
if you're walking in repentance of sin and faith towards Christ and Christ alone, then you are not like Judas. You are like Peter, who failed, failed miserably. I've said this before, but I believe that the sin that Peter committed was on par with what Judas did. But Jesus was interceding for him. Jesus was interceding for him. Beloved, God the Son intercedes for us as well. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said that he doesn't pray for the world, but for those that the Father has given him. Verse 9. And we are included in that prayer as well. As he prays in, in verse 20, I, don't, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now that prayer is primarily a prayer for unity, but it includes the whole prayer. Beloved, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 25. So what's the difference? Fellow Christian, between you and Judas? Jesus. Jesus. That he has called you to eternal life in him and that Jesus Christ is faithful. Beloved, he who calls you is faithful. He who calls you says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Beloved, even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. So I pray that we would all, as we, as we examine this passage of Scripture, to do so in the light of the Holy Spirit and to see that the, the reality or the fiction of our discipleship with Jesus and that all of us would respond in repentance unto salvation. Let's pray together.